Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwomen. Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to do some shameless plugging. So if you haven't bought the handbag or an incredibly appropriate Zoom sweatshirt, aka our best-selling Janine, head over to my site. This podcast is brought to you by the support of you. So would love for you to buy some gifts, enjoy some of our sales that we're having, and just support the cause and the brand that floats this podcast. Also, I'm not sure if you've heard, but I launched a fragrance. It is available at Macy's and Nordstrom and Birchbox and Scentbird. So I highly, highly advise you smell good from the comfort of your bed or living room. Hey everyone, welcome to Superwomen. Today's guest, I'm very excited to talk to. I am a super fan and I haunt her location near my office frequently. Marla Beth, who is the co-founder and CEO behind Blue Mercury, the nation's largest and fastest growing luxury beauty retailer and spa in the country. So hello and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I am a super fan of you also. So the feeling is mutual. So I would love to kind of go back to the beginning because I know you were acquired, but I would love to go through kind of the initial idea that you had for Blue Mercury and your skincare lines, but where did you start off? So I actually grew up in California and was always a beauty junkie. There were little beauty shops where people made handmade things in Berkeley, which was about five minutes from where I grew up. And when I was in high school, I used a new brand called Dermalogica. And so I always knew what was new and what was going on in beauty. Uh, When I moved east to go to graduate school in Boston, uh, I used to have to drive 45 minutes to buy MAC lipstick, which was only sold at Bendel's in one place. And on top of that, it was the beginning of the first e-commerce boom. In fact, we had just gotten our own email addresses and Google and all of the search and all of the businesses that are here today did not exist. There was an obscure entrepreneur that came to business school uh, to talk about his business. Uh, He was talking about how he was going to bring books to the internet. And I was completely floored. It was Jeff Bezos. Only 30 people came to his talk. I was inspired by this new potential world out there that I couldn't even imagine. And so started to think about what products I could bring to the internet. I moved to D.C. after grad school and started Blue Mercury to bring luxury beauty products to the Internet. So initially inspired by Jeff Bezos and my obsession with beauty. And we were one of the first to bring brands to the Internet back in 1999. We quickly realized we were too early. Not everybody was shopping online. In fact, everybody was on AOL dial-up and it used to take forever to get online. And so we were just too early with that idea. And so we pivoted and I laugh because the word pivot didn't exist then. We we were actually uh, almost bankrupt and realized we needed to do something different. And so we opened our first beauty store in Washington, D.C. in Georgetown. Back then, you could only buy cosmetics at drugstores or department stores. There was no such thing as a freestanding beauty store. And uh, we thought, why not create this environment where 
and staff were trained in all brands where you could touch and feel products and that um, you could get makeup application and spa services in one place. Uh, if you think back to then, and I know a lot of people um, did not shop back then who may be listening, but everything was behind glass counters at department stores. And you had to go up to the counter and ask someone to touch things, to try things. And I was in my 20s and I felt like no one really wanted to help me because I looked like I wasn't going to spend money. So this idea of the freestanding neighborhood beauty store was revolutionary at the time. And I remember uh, I was so happy our first clients used to come in screaming that they could touch products, find find obscure brands, get advice on a bunch of different brands and their beauty problems, uh, and also get spa services uh, in the same location. And so that was the start of Blue Mercury. We rode a bunch of different waves, the e-commerce wave and this move from buying beauty products at, at department stores to buying beauty products in specialty stores. Uh, so it, it was uh, really the beginning and it took us a long time to build the business. I've been at it for 21 years. So excited to have been building Blue Mercury for all of that time. I love that what seems as an overnight success to people when they read about your acquisition is like, oh no, I've been doing this for 21 years. I almost went bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, it just goes to show you. And, I, and I, I like to talk about that because I think people think that I'm an overnight success and I've been also doing this for 20 years. You know, there's a lot of blocking and tackling around entrepreneurship. And usually your initial idea is completely wrong, right? I think you have to have humility to realize that you're wrong and that you need to change directions. And we were humbled in the first year pretty quickly and made us really sort of try to deal in truth and build a real business that had value for customers. And, you know, I think we got caught up in the first internet craze and it was exciting and fun. And then we realized that we, we had to spend our time knowing and understanding what people want, what they need in beauty and then just really took our time building the business and building an enduring company. So when you were faced with bankruptcy being too early to the e-com days, how did you guys have, I guess, the bravery or even funds to open your first brick and mortar? You know, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, in fact, we had received investment for the e-commerce business and our investors hated the idea of doing a store because back then all the value was in pure play e-commerce. And so my husband and I, Barry, actually used our own money to do the first store. Uh, if it had not worked, we would have really been in trouble, but we were kind of young and naive. We were in our twenties and we just thought, okay, we're going to make this work. We're going to do, you know, one store and see how it goes. Now we had a little bit of a benefit because we bought the lease from an owner that had a gift shop that had some beauty products. And so we were in a site uh, that already had customers walking in to buy some beauty products. And so that reduced our risk a little bit, but we knew we didn't want to go bankrupt. We knew we needed a new opportunity. We knew stores generated revenue and cash flow, And so we really took our own savings and just, you know, bet everything on it. It turns out to have worked. But I think when you're faced with the prospect of failure, you can either throw the towel in or you can try to find another way. And, you know, I, 
I think we just, we wanted to be our own bosses. We wanted to be entrepreneurs. We didn't want to throw in the towel and have to start over. And so, you know, we worked that first location ourselves. I laugh, I've rung the register, you know, we had spas. So we, you know, had a lot of laundry to do. I used to do laundry in the basement. And so I, I think we had a whatever it takes mentality. And I had friends that used to tease me. They're like, oh, you know, here, here you went to business school, you have all these fancy degrees and you're doing laundry in the basement. And it didn't bother me. I just knew that we would do what it takes to build a business. And so I, I think part of it is we were young and dumb and part of it was we were going to do whatever we had to do. I think that's a, a true component in success is doing whatever you have to do. And when you said doing laundry in the basement, I used to run and produce and sit at the cash register for all of our sample sales. And I'll never forget this one gentleman who was buying a bag for his wife, didn't know it was me. And he's like, must be nice, all this money she's making. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, if you only knew that this money is like keeping the lights on and I'm not pocketing any of it, you know, the things we did is, is and, and still have to do, especially right now, it is whatever it takes. Yeah, but I also think you learn so much by being that close to the customer. You know, I think we had a male customer who was in his 20s come in, you know, that very first year uh, with acne. And, you know, I think we found the right product for him. And he came back a week later and said that, you know, you changed my life. And that was that was part of my realization that, first of all, men would be customers for beauty products too. And so we really drove our stores to not be overly feminine and our product mix, we always, you know, watch for men. And then this idea that we're solving skincare and cosmetic problems uh, for people, not just selling products. And I, I just think being that close to the customer that early on just really drove my imagination about what could be. And so I'm always happiest now when in the stores or now on Zoom connecting with our customers because they tell you what the future is, right? You don't have to you know, be in your ivory tower to figure out what the future is. They will tell you what they want. Yeah. And good or bad, they will tell you what they want. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I, I'm thinking of this. It's ironic. I had a customer, you know, write in my comments on Instagram, like, you're able to make these videos, but not get back to me in, in time. And I immediately flag it to my customer service team who's like, uh, we saw this ticket three days ago. And I'm always like, oh, that panic when you're not servicing your customer or you think you're not. They will, they will let you know how they feel, right or wrong. 100%, but that's how you know what to fix and what to improve and where to go. Exactly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So you said in an interview that your secret sauce has been the retaining and elevating of your staff. And, you know, it used to be that the beauty industry viewed these people as just part-time staff that could be hired and fired, but you've really grown your staff, taken someone without a college education, and now they're making six figures a year. So what made you take that approach and how has that been one of the keys to success? 
Yeah, I think we realized really early on that that our people and their connections to our customers and to our company would be our secret weapon. And I remember, you know, I was meeting all sorts of people in the retail industry when I first started because, you know, so many people were willing to give you guidance and advice, whether you want it or not. And everybody said, you know, you want to hire everybody full time. That's ridiculous. You will never be able to make your business work if you only hire full time beauty staff because it will be too expensive. The benefits will be too expensive and it's a stupid idea. And I just, I didn't believe that. You know, I believed that if we hired full-time people and gave them a home where they could grow and become leaders over time, that they would be loyal. And if you had their loyalty and you kept their beauty knowledge within your company, they would better serve your customers. They would know more than everyone else. And they would feel comfortable to sort of exercise their knowledge and their creativity. And, you know, I, I think we have the best people in the industry because they've grown up and developed with us. And so I think part of being an, an entrepreneur is you can take an advice, uh, but then you have to do what you think is right and what you know is right and what your gut tells you. And so that was a, a key decision point for us that has been, I think, completely life-changing for our company. Uh, we do have um, leaders running you know, our company that started you know, as beauty experts on our store floor. And I think, especially as, you know, retail continues to be challenged, that the more you can invest in your people and give them a home, the more you create this atmosphere and excitement around what you're doing. And so that that has always been something that's important to us and continues to be important today, this idea of keeping the experts and growing and develop, developing people within your company. I think that if I were to take stock of every time someone asked for a raise or a promotion and for whatever reason we couldn't do it and then they leave and what we pay to replace them, not only a headhunter fee, but a new person coming in wanting more, I think your approach is spot on because we we could have retained these people theoretically. You can't retain everybody, but it is so much more expensive to replace someone again with that knowledge that is irreplaceable, right? That knowledge and experience. I think that's right. I mean, I think if we look at our managers, our district managers and, you know, our field and our corporate office, you know, 50% of our promotions are from within. And, you know, that's exciting for people to see results from the work they put in. And you cannot underestimate that. I'd always rather take someone and develop them than hire uh, from the outside because they know your language and we forget there's a language to a company. I mean, we always talk about how friendly we are and how passionate we are about product, but you see that every day. And once someone knows that language, you have to teach that to someone new that comes in. And so I think retention is undervalued. I also think that's why we are a company that has an entire senior management team of women uh, and we're 93% women overall. And so we, have said we want to grow and develop our teams and that promoting from within has really enabled the diversity in our teams. I love that. So in 2015, you did an acquisition with Macy's. I'd love to go to the emotional side of that. What was that like for you? While I'm sure it's exciting to be sold, was there a part of you that was, oh my gosh, this baby that I built, I'm giving it away. And how has it been since then? 
Yeah. So a couple of things about that. We have been growing really rapidly and aggressively and realized we were building every single function from scratch. And that was becoming a challenge. So we're building HR and tech and our supply chain and, you know, as well as our customer service and, you know, our field force. And we wanted to step on the gas and grow more rapidly without having to build every single function on our own. And so Macy's was a great match because they were the number six e-commerce player in the country. They had amazing supply chain technology and processes. And so we were able to leverage all of their resources to grow from 68 locations to almost 200. And so that was the reason we did the deal with them and partnered with them to grow the company. Now, anytime you sell your company, it's bittersweet. I would say it's like sending a kid off to college, right? Which is, you know, your whole life has been wrapped up in this child and spending time with them and developing them and growing them. And then you hand the child off to a new uh, world. And so it is bittersweet, but you also see the results and the growth and the blossoming. So I think for me, you know, fortunately, I've had the best of both worlds. So, you know, I was able to hand my child off, but still be a part of their life. I've been running Blue Mercury under Macy's now for six years. So I have the best of everything, which is all of their resources and technology and insight but still have stayed with my team and kept our DNA and culture true to who we are. Yes, it's definitely different. I always tell women who are trying to just out the gate, raise VC money. I'm like, you have no idea who you're marrying. They are going to be more married to you contractually than any partner you'd ever have. So be careful. I think that's right. A little comment on that. So we had angel investment and you know VCs up front, but then because of the dot-com bust and the market crash in 2001, 2002, we could not raise a dime for two years. And that ended up being a blessing in disguise uh, because we had to figure out a business model that was profitable. We bootstrapped. And so we've always been really cost conscious since then. Uh, and it enabled us to keep more control over time. And so sometimes not raising money is a blessing because you really take a look at your business and say, what is valued? How can I build a profitable model? How can I build for the long term without fueling the business with outside capital and outside investors? And so that was something that didn't feel good at the time, I will say, you know, not being able to raise money doesn't feel good. But in hindsight, it made us smarter and scrappier for the long term. And so I think it's such a debate, you know, do you raise capital? How do you raise capital from who, when? I think, you know, we get wrapped up in this angel and VC world and you see, you know, these big companies that continually raise huge rounds. I think there are many paths. You tend to hear about only one path, but there are benefits to the many paths that you should be thinking about. Yeah beyond. There's so many paths now. I feel like I say this probably like a broken record, but we seem to only put up examples of women who have taken in large sums of cash and never the ones that have either self-funded or had angels or friends and family or credit cards or my brother mortgaged his house for, you know, to pay for, for our first growth. 
So not that everyone should mortgage their house, but. No, no, but I I think you're right. I think we want to see those success stories of women because there are so many success stories of men, but we also want to see all of the different paths and possibilities. Exactly. So switching gears here, because I do love to touch on learnings, failures, how you got through it. What has been some of the most unexpected challenges that you've encountered in your 20 year plus career? And how did you get through them or or not? So I I talked briefly about the worst one, which was almost going bankrupt in the first year of business. Those were my I can't get out of bed moments, which I think every entrepreneur has, but doesn't always talk about because we we had to lay off a lot of people we had hired. Uh, I thought we were going to fail. So I talked about that briefly. But I also think, you know, the most recent COVID pandemic and the actions we had to take, you know, when we shut down all 200 of our locations in March and we kept people on the payroll for a month and then realized we couldn't afford to do it and had to furlough people. That was the first time I ever actually cried on a conference call to the whole company because here was you know, a company I've been building for 21 years. It's family to me. Our people are family. And here we had to fight for survival and furlough people and take pay cuts and really impact everybody's lives in the midst of, you know, their lives were already being impacted by their families. You know, people were losing jobs, their kids couldn't go to school. And it was really, I think, you know, the hardest time in my entire career, other than almost going bankrupt, um, because uh, the actions we had to take for survival didn't feel good. And so, you know, I'm still, you know, emotionally scarred by that time and those actions we had to take. It was humbling to, to say the least. And I think, you know, coming out of not coming out of this pandemic, but continuing to work through, you know, the shifts in business right now, it's, it's hard for the teams, it's hard for people. And so really thinking about how we do that and how we move forward, you know, maintaining the business while also innovating and making sure our people are taken care of and are safe. This is a hard time to be a, an omni-channel retailer. And so I'm very cognizant of that. Um, and so I feel like this year has been a series of failures uh, in terms of not being able to do exactly what I thought was the right thing to do and trading off survival for that. You know, it's a hard year and people um, have a lot going on and you're you're just trying to keep the warmth and the culture together in the midst of the pandemic. And it's not the easiest thing to do. Um, and you see, you know, across companies and across industries, you know, there are huge winners from the pandemic and there are, are struggles and challenges. And, you know, I, I think the only thing that I thought about the right thing to do is just to be positive and hopeful and optimistic about the future because it's all we can do. Yeah, I too in March was faced with furloughs and layoffs and and something we've never had to do before. And like you, I cried on every phone call because I was letting go of team members that had been with us for seven, eight years that we just, you know, our business sheared off a cliff with the closure of wholesale. Every call my brother would say, you know, more have to go. Not that he wanted them to, but I was like, no, 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 we have to keep this person and this person. He was like, we're going to go out of business if we continue to pay these people. So make your choice. Do you want to go out of business and pay everyone, you know, or do you want to let go of some people and potentially even 
try and make it. And I think I agree with you is the hardest time I've ever experienced as an entrepreneur to have to go through, you know, letting your family go, essentially. That's exactly right. And, you know, even businesses, you see it with restaurants, they are trying to hold on. It is so hard. Um, So I have tremendous admiration from the for every entrepreneur that is going through this pandemic and struggling with the uh, no-win choices they have to make. Totally. So now that we uh, have talked about <laughs> that that time period, I don't know if you have a lump in your throat, but I do from remembering that. I love. I do love to end on a high note and wanted to see if you had advice that you could share that was either hard won or that someone gave you that you think you want to pass on to my listeners that you think, oh, if they can apply this one thing, you know, they'll be better off. Sure. So um, I had a professor when I was in business school, his name was Clayton Christensen. And he wrote a book a couple of years ago called How Will You Measure Your Life? And it's funny, he didn't teach us just about business. He taught us about life. And he has a message that I think is very valuable. And I always tell my children this too. You have two jobs in your life. One is to develop meaningful relationships and the other is to find meaningful work. And if you do those two things, that's what drives success. And I think for entrepreneurs, it's very um, easy to get caught up in their work. And so it's really, really important to develop those meaningful relationships, whatever that means to you, whether it's a spouse or a partner or your children or, you know, your in-laws or, you know, that means many things to many people. But I always try to keep that in mind when I'm veering off one way or the other. And then a second just little lesson that I always talk to my kids about and I keep in mind, which is never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. So if you are given an opportunity, prepare for it, plan for it, take it and seize it. And I I think, you know, you're given micro opportunities every day um, to try something new, you know, whether, you know, one of my daughters was invited, you know, to help lead the yearbook. And I'm like, yes, seize that opportunity, but don't just seize it, be great at it. And so every day we have micro opportunities. Maybe you get to present for work. Um, Maybe you have an opportunity to meet a new angel investor, whatever it is, seize it and be great at it. And I remind myself of that too. So I think it's a lesson for everybody. I love those. And last but not least, what would we be surprised to know about you? Uh, You know, some people know this, uh, others don't. Uh, I walk at least four miles with my husband every day. Uh, We've done this since we started Blue Mercury. It's just so much a part of the fabric of our lives, whether it's early in the morning or late at night. That's something we do. And then the second thing, which a lot of people would be surprised about is we got a COVID puppy. I haven't had a, we haven't had a puppy or dog in 20 something years. So uh, we broke down and our teenagers begged for it. Uh, So we have a little COVID puppy. Oh, that's so cute. I love it. I I feel like the only people that are getting puppies now are empty nesters or the only people that are making babies now don't have any kids. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So yeah, we have a puppy. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you. You've been incredible. I'm I'm inspired. I'm reinvigorated. And I'm sure my listeners will be too. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh my God. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan and excited um, for all of your listeners to continue to listen to all of your insight and wisdom. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. 
And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom, Macy's, Scentbirds, and Birchboxes, as well as our site.